You're listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, a conversational podcast series from NASA's Ames Research Center to chat with the various scientists, researchers, engineers, and all-around cool people at NASA. In the news today, we have a neat story on nasa.gov slash Ames on pink pressure paint that's used in wind tunnels to better understand how air passes over airplane designs. We also have a few updates on the Kepler mission and how folks throughout the astronomy community are helping to focus research and search for Earth-like planets. Today's guest is Laura Arachi, research scientist and Ajax principal investigator at NASA Ames. We discussed NASA's work on Earth science and how when we better understand the Earth, it helps advance space exploration. We also go into detail on the Ajax project and how it is able to measure ozone and greenhouse gases over California and Nevada. Without further ado, here is Laura Arachi. I always like to start it off with, how did you get to Silicon Valley? But also, <laughs> like, how did you get to NASA? Because, you know, it is NASA in Silicon Valley after all. So my mother thinks I got to Silicon Valley because I was trying to get away from her. Nice. Yeah, so I grew up in upstate That New tends York. to happen. Then I went oh. to college, to grad school in Cal- grad school in Colorado. Oh, nice. Which was a two-hour time difference. Okay. It vexed my mother. <laughs> so then I figured for a job, I had to go further west. Nice. So she thinks any day now I'm moving to Hawaii. Uh, okay. Just to really mess with her. But it, in all fairness, it is really cold in upstate New York. I miss the snow. Really? I really miss the snow. See, the way I always kind of thought of, especially the Bay Area, but California in general, is like, yeah, you don't get all the seasons. You only get the good ones. Duh, no, you don't. You only get the <laughs> freaking summer. Oh, I hate the heat. Oh, really? See, I grew up with no air conditioning in Ohio, so. I grew up with no air conditioning in New York, so. Those are cool. I, I despise the heat, but at uh, least it's not humid. But God, what's with this drought? Yes. This drought is ridiculous. I'm really worried about the fire season. I, well, this was one of the things that I didn't I, I didn't realize as much was a thing. You know, from moving out here, of um, you know, coming from DC, rains all the time, no big deal. I knew about the drought, but you don't really know until you get here. And then I'm walking my dog, and it's like crunchy grass. But then every once in a while, I'll be super nice and green. And then I realize, oh, no, they've, they have they did a life hack and put fake grass in, <laughs> which I kind of get a kick out of. I think, you know, that's how I would do my landscaping. So, <laughs> but, uh, so okay, so you went to school in, uh, in Colorado and then came out here. Was it for work or did you do like in like coming to NASA? Was it an internship or so some sort I, of doctoral thing? The way I originally came to NASA actually was through a college summer internship. And it was at Goddard. Wow. It was the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and I spent a summer there working on stratospheric ozone depletion. Really? Which, as it turns out, then I loved it so much, I found a graduate program where I could study the same thing, but in the laboratory, because okay. I'm more of a hands-on kind of person. Nice. And then did that in Colorado for about five years, and then ultimately found my way back to NASA later. But my interest in the atmosphere really came about because of a NASA internship. Oh, wow. And so, like... So by the time you applied for the job that was here at Ames, it was good because you'd already had that experience. You'd already probably knew some people and right. were able to like reference different things. Right. In fact, the fellow that I worked for that summer at Goddard is the one who helped me find my grad school program. I oh, asked cool. him for suggestions like, who studies this field? And things were really <laughs> just getting going at that point. There weren't a lot of degree programs in atmospheric 
chemistry in particular. And okay. so there were just a handful of programs to consider. And he said, oh, there's this, you know, there's this professor at Colorado. I think she just moved to Colorado and she had just started there. And so I was able to find her program and get enrolled there. And then oh, wow. ultimately got my degree there. And it's a perfect fit, especially for Ames, because I always think of, you know, when you think of NASA, you know, people always tend to think of like, you know, rockets and astronauts. And it's, and sometimes when you're like, no, earth science is a huge part of what NASA does. And sometimes you kind of wonder like, well, how does that fit? And, I'm, and it's kind of like, you, of studying planets and looking outside the solar system or within the solar system, we kind of have a big planet right here that we can study, that we can extrapolate. Exactly. And being able to see it from space means we can see the whole thing. Oh, wow. So if you're just looking at the air quality in the Bay Area, that's easy enough to do from here in the Bay Area. But if you want to see the air quality in Asia or the air quality that's going to blow your direction in four or five or six days, you want to be able to see the whole planet. And to do that, you really need to get into orbit, which is where NASA comes in. And in fact, NASA has a charter from uh, Congress to mm -hmm. study the ozone hole, the ozone layer okay. from space. And so that's really how um, NASA first got formally directed, I think, to really? study the Earth's atmosphere. And that was yeah. from back when? From like like the eight, like 80s, 90s when that happened? I actually or? don't know if the authorization was from earlier or if it was okay. from just sort of in the 80s when things got hot and heavy. So NASA had been studying, it's a really interesting story, I don't know if you know the story of how the no, ozone hole was discovered. It. I love it. So uh, before we use this, we should probably fact check it because this is coming from out of my ear. <laughs> yes. Um, but the way I understand it is that there's... Uh, there's been a scientific presence in Antarctica for ages. Okay. And there's a fellow from the British Antarctic Survey who was okay. taking measurements by looking up at the sun from the surface of the Earth and studying all of the ozone that was above him. Okay. And most of the ozone resides in the ozone layer up in the lower stratosphere. And he was getting data that he didn't understand. It just didn't yeah. make sense. And so he was checking it out and checking it out. It didn't make sense. didn't make sense. And he thought he was wrong. So he went to talk to the folks at NASA who'd been studying ozone from satellites. Okay. And he said, I've got these really crazy answers. Can you tell me what you guys see when you look over Antarctica with your satellites? And lo and behold, the NASA satellite had been monitoring the same thing, but had been throwing out the data as illogical. Oh, that it was, it was such a small amount of ozone, it couldn't possibly be a true signal. So they had been screening their data and throwing out these completely unexpected and thought to be unrealistic answers. And so sure enough, the signal of the ozone hole was in the NASA satellite data, but it had been pre-screened out. And so when they put their heads together, they both realized, you know, with both data sets, you could realize that you actually had this unexpected phenomenon. Okay. And so then they had to figure out how. How, how it was happening. Why? So it wasn't predicted that there would be an Antarctic ozone hole. It had been predicted that there would be a slow depletion of ozone globally due to the chlorofluorocarbons in um, okay. aerosol cans. So that's probably okay. the story you've heard. Yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember growing up as a kid, it was like the aerosol cans were bad. And, right. You know. So it wasn't expected to be localized. Okay. over the Antarctic the way it was. And so there were three competing, you know, three theories were postulated at the time. And Ames actually put together the field campaign that went down to study really in situ to go to Antarctica with aircraft and measure the phenomenon and see which of these three theories was correct. And so that's like that, that it's fascinating and it kind of segues right into some of the Ajax work that you're already doing of you know we, NASA has the satellites that are going around that are taking measurements and then actually sending a plane to validate to be like yes we're on the right track or 
hey, the satellite's completely like not calibrated right because we're picking up something that you're not seeing. Right, and also to just be able to think a little differently about a data set. I think that's something that kind of comes from being out here in the Silicon yes, Valley absolutely. and Ames's heritage from when it was an NACA center yeah. was always very cutting edge in terms of thinking about different ways to do aeronautics, different ways to mm -hmm. do engine design. And I think because we had that background in aeronautics and in thinking a little differently, and now in earth science, we had the capabilities at Ames to scramble that mission and to think about how we would study the ozone hole differently than anyone had thought about it before. And so with the Ajax project, we can do the same thing. We can think about different science questions. So well, the cool thing is, is like at least fact checking the <laughs> Antarctic story, even though I'm sure as the internet goes and checks Wikipedia to verify right. it, we can validly say that that is definitely what Laura thought that it was exactly. at the moment of this recording. Absolutely true. <laughs> but cir circling to Ajax, for people who are, may not be aware or don't work at Ames and, and get to hear a, a weekly update. Um, so what exactly is AJAX? What does that stand for? What is the core mission? What are you trying to do? Yeah, so AJAX is the Alpha Jet Atmospheric Experiment. It's a neat project we have here at Ames that takes advantage of some of our partners here at the NASA Research Park. And it gives us an opportunity to put atmospheric sensors on an aircraft and get measurements of sort of this California and Nevada area, maybe two to three to four times a month, depending on cool. when the plane is available and when the pilots have hours that they can fly. Okay. So we measure all sorts of things like air quality in the Central Valley, where it can be really, really bad in the summer, mm -hmm. um, to greenhouse gases that are emitted, say, from this natural gas leak that just happened down in Aliso Canyon. In LA. Yeah. It was near LA, right? Yeah, it was or, San Fernando Valley, just okay. north. Yep. Um, so that was for about four months. There was this horrible leak of methane gas. And so that's one of the sensors that we happen to carry on the Ajax payload. We have a sensor that measures CO2 and methane and water. We have another one that measures ozone and one that measures formaldehyde, plus okay. a wind pressure temperature sensor. So I'm guessing, are there multiple like ex ongoing experiments and lab things going on? And so it's just a matter of when you're able to get up and get, and get data sets? Or right. So we have about maybe six or so science questions that we just keep queued up in the back of our brains and we wait for the right weather and we wait for the right satellite overpasses and when okay. everything when we find out oh we're going to be able to have flight hours on thursday we pull out our planning sheets and we say okay which satellites are where what's the weather look like how hot is it supposed to be in fresno and we figure out which science target matches best with the do flight you, opportunity. Do you always try to coordinate it so it's like at the same time as the satellite's going over, you fly at the same time? Is if that, possible, that's ideal. That's the ideal. But um, in reality, the satellite's going way faster than the aircraft, so they will only overlap for you know one or two data points anyway oh, out wow. of a whole two-hour flight. Oh, okay. So usually within a couple of hours, it's considered reasonable agreement. The air changes kind of slowly. Okay. Relative to how fast the satellite moves, <laughs> yes. right? Yes, it figures kind of going. Yeah, even relative to how fast the aircraft moves. So we try to get within an hour or two. Okay. And since you've been working on the project, what have been some of the, what has surprised you, I guess? Or what has been like kind of exciting or, or even just being like, wow, I did not think that that was going to be a thing. Or is it, or has it been more so validating what you are, what people had already expected? One thing we've been fortunate in an unfortunate sort of way to be able to do is to sample mm -hmm. large wildfires. So we've okay. had several large wildfires in California in the last handful of years, and they've been close enough to Ames that we've been able to go and make measurements of the emissions from those forest fires. Okay. And that's a, a science target that's undersampled. So most of the emissions that 
you can look up and you know in these inventory databases that would predict what's emitted from fires in the West are based on prescribed fires. Okay. But most of the burning that happens in the West By is prescribed actually, fires, what exactly? So the Forest Service will go out and do a small burn okay. to clear some land, okay. or maybe it'll be like um, grassland. Okay, so so they mean to do... They, they're yeah. on purpose. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah they're, they're pick them for uh, temperate weather conditions when they won't expand too yes, much. Yes, okay, and so controlled. And burn but. something off in advance of it lighting on its own and going crazy. Okay. So the conditions are different than when something lights on its own and goes crazy. Yes. So the emissions are different. But yet oh, okay. all of our databases are built on primarily these, on, on these gentle controlled burns. Oh, okay. And so in the West, the databases are not terribly representative. So we've been okay. able to go out and get some measurements around about six or eight now different forest fires. and you know, right in the Sierras where it's the true fuel mix okay. and get a better understanding, particularly of how much methane is emitted from these fires because methane is a potent greenhouse gas, as you know, and it's not been well studied how that changes over time, over the life of a fire okay. and from one fire to another. Oh, that's fascinating. So like, how long have you been working on this? What were you doing even before that? Like, how did, how, what was that trajectory to start working on this? I mean... Because you, you're studying like like the stratosphere, right. you know. Was there a project that you were, that you originally had came on, and then this kind of just leveraged into this position, or? So I came to Ames working on laboratory chemistry, studying the com the chemistry of aerosol particles in the atmosphere. So similar to my PhD work yes. that was studying stratospheric aerosols. How fortuitous! Exactly, <laughs> studying aerosols and the chemistry that can happen on particles in the atmosphere and how it can affect the composition of the air, and then. Somehow this partnership came about, and I honestly don't know if it was the center director at the time who brought these partners to Ames, Okay. Um, but the aircraft became available to us. Oh, that's awesome. And so the it, center director said to the head of the Earth Science Division, here's an aircraft to do Earth Science with. And oh, I wow. suspect that the division chief looked around and said, who's dumb enough to say yes to a crazy <laughs> new project? And I didn't run away fast enough. So this is good for the, for the listeners who, if you're not aware, um, where uh, Ames is located in the heart of Silicon Valley, but it's on Moffett Federal Airfield. It used to be an old Navy base. But it's one of the few, I mean, you think of a lot of NASA centers who have launch pads <laughs> or even some of the research centers that don't. But um, so we have a big, like an airstrip to an actual, where, you know, people land regular it's a working you know federal air like you know airfield mm -hmm. so how fortunate is like you have you know other commercial or other groups like different flights already there we can take advantage of our location to be able to like use you know take advantage of that exactly and so we have the airfield we have the partners with the aircraft and we actually are located in a place that has some good atmospheric phenomena to study exactly. so we can get out over the pacific where the air is supposed to be clean and where the EPA sort of presumes it's Especially clean with the, with air. The, with the way the wind is moving, so you can go out. And exactly. So the prevailing winds are in from the water to the land, from the west to the east. Nice. And so in, if you think of it, you think, oh, this clean air from over the Pacific, it hasn't seen any pollution yet. Let's see what happens when San Francisco and Fresno add all of their Boy, junk to Nevada. the air. And then you actually go out there and you measure it and you realize that some days it's actually filthy already wow. before it even gets to California. And so how are we going to meet these air quality standards that keep getting tighter and tighter to protect health? But mm -hmm. when we're receiving air into the continental boundary that's already half full of pollution. Like oh, wow. you can't you can't solve that problem by stopping any emissions in San Francisco or in you know it's in a much Mountain bigger View. global 
Exactly. So, so it's a really great location for us to study certain certain things about our atmosphere, one of them being the Trans-Pacific Transport of ozone and its precursor mm -hmm. molecules. Oh, wow. So, okay. Um, so one of the cool things about being here is also you think of like the, the broad portfolio that Ames does. So it's like, no matter what your interest is, there's like, there's just so much content and so many other things going on. So obviously you've been working in like, you know, earth science, um, studying the ozone. What are some of the other things that you see your, your peers and your colleagues working on that kind of interest you and kind of like, or, you know? Well, I can't stop thinking about particles and atmospheres. And so there are particles in the atmosphere of Titan that I really oh, want to cool. study. Well, there's somebody in our division who is proposing how you might put a telescope on the moon and look back at Earth. Oh, wow. Pretty good vantage point, actually. It's like so. the advantage of having a big planet here to study. Just to a then... handy little science base <laughs> right there. Oh, so cool. Yeah, so um, yeah, it, it's just interesting the different things that are going on around yeah, here. Yeah, there's a project here I really want to figure out how to squeeze into my life that I want okay. to get involved in. There's a, a project in the aeronautics division looking okay. at more fuel-efficient aviation, which means less pollution from aircraft, which is why I'm interested, right? Because aircraft are a pretty big source of both what we traditionally think of as pollution mm -hmm. and what we've until recently sort of separately categorized as greenhouse gases. So mm -hmm. both the emissions that lead to ozone, which makes your eyes water and your lungs okay. itch, um, but also the CO2 and, and black soot particles that can lead to warming of the atmosphere. See, that also fits into at least the, the things that you think of that are traditionally NASA, but then you move into aeronautics and earth science. Because, I mean, I, 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 I get to have a fun time when I'm on a plane and you're looking out the window at the wing and you see the little winglet that pops up and you're like, oh no, NASA did that. <laughs> like, yeah. That was from like studying and then that makes the plane more fuel efficient. Yep, exactly. So that's the kind of neat stuff that's so prevalent here. It's just, I need to find more hours in the day. Maybe I need, we need someone to study cloning. Nice. And solve this problem of not enough hours in the day. Actually, <laughs> I guess we could go about this either way. At NASA, we could either clone or me, break the space-time continuum. I was going to say just go slow back down the rotation of the Earth. That you know, we know that to be true by evidence by Superman. Of course, because you know that's how of course space-time works. Is you spin the Earth backwards, and the, then you know exactly that earthquake never happened. Funny, oh, he never, speaking of he never used that power in yeah. any other situation. <laughs> no, just that one time. <laughs> I'd use it every day. Like, oh, I spilled my milk. Oh, yeah, all right, I don't let's feel redo like this. It up. Let's, let's bring it on back. Earth. <laughs> so, okay, you were saying earthquakes. But speaking of earthquakes, did you hear about this um, disaster preparedness drill the other day? Was Is this the one that, that was out of headquarters? Yeah. All I, I knew that it was, they were doing this um, test. and. What I took away from that is like, if you're trying to reach somebody in DC, they're probably working from home or not available. <laughs> that was the takeaway. That was so, pretty funny. Well, the Ajax team, I got an email. Really? Asking for us to task assets to go look at JPL, which had had this you know, simulated landslide. Yes. And so we have an airfield here that's on bedrock. Mm -hmm. And so the earthquake that they were you know, using it as a in test, this as test. An example. So, so from time for the listeners, sometime, from time to time, the, the government will, will have these simulated tests. So in case something bad happens, we've already practiced and prepared. And in, in this case, it was a Southern California earthquake near JPL. And it's kind of like, how does NASA react? Exactly. And so they, we were pretending that there was a landslide at JPL and um, 
that the effects of it had actually been felt partway, you know, all the way up to Santa Clara County here where we are. So since our airfield is actually on bedrock here, which is why one of the reasons I think that FEMA is co-located with us, yeah. since our airfield is on bedrock, we were, you know, proposing that Ajax could uh, mobilize to do some aerial photography or some toxic, okay. some uh, methane sensing. And it was pretty neat because I was not expecting this. I hadn't heard about this exercise mm -hmm. at all. And I came back from a meeting and sat down and there was this whole string of emails. Oh, wow. And it was, you know, the the exercise and then a bunch of other people had responded to it. I thought, oh my gosh, what's going on? But it was really clear in the headers. Exercise, exercise, yes. this, this is a drill. Sure. This, this is, is literally a drill. A drill. But uh, since we have a flight planned tomorrow anyway, I was like, oh, well, we have a flight on Thursday. We could go down and if you can give me an air traffic control phone number, I can try to get into the LA airspace because I have never tried to really get into the LA airspace because that just looks like a nightmare. Oh yeah, having gone through LAX, yeah. you, you kind of quickly. Well, there's so many airports that. down there. There's Burbank, That's true. There's Riverside, there's Ontario, there's Van Nuys, which well, was in the way for the. We Lisa get a Canyon. little bit of that with San Jose and San Francisco, but yeah. we're kind of separated far enough from those that it's not. Yeah, as I've always wanted to sample across the the southern end of the Silicon Valley to look at the emissions from the valley down, sort of southward out through San Jose down to Gilroy. Oh, wow. But it's the approach corridor to San Jose, to the San Jose <laughs> airport. So You'd be going through the San Jose I, airport, which is like, are they really going to direct, redirect all these commercial things? It's like you're like, but I have a hypothesis I'm working on. I need on. to test my science. Oh. So I have to figure out, I've got some clever pilots who are usually game for a challenge. So I have nice. to figure out how to set up the flight plan. And to I make it work. think we can do it because the, the approaches are so clearly laid out. They're always done the same way. So we can always predict what the air traffic controllers are going to want. Mm -hmm. So we should be able to outsmart it and build a plan that's everywhere else but there. Cool. Well, this has been super fun. Um, if, if anybody wants to look you up or learn about some of the research or anything that you're doing, are you in the Twitter sphere? We're in the Twitter sphere. We're at NASA Ajax. Oh, nice. I'm pretty slow at tweeting. It's not my uh, primary job function. So Amongst I only, many others. Exactly. But I only you do, do actually. Flight days usually. So if you're tweeting at NASA Ajax, then you're going to get Laura responding. you almost always going to get me. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So I'll so for the, for the podcast, if anybody, we're at NASA Ames, and we are using the hashtag, uh, hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Thank you so much for coming on over. Thanks for the conversation. Bye.